Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BioReport. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BioReport, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The advent of mRNA therapies is allowing drug developers to pursue targets once considered undruggable. Anima Biotech has developed a platform that allows it to use small molecules that selectively control mRNA and can decrease or increase the translation of proteins. The approach has broad applicability as evidenced by the company's pipeline, which includes experimental therapies for oncology, neurology, infectious disease, and fibrosis. We spoke to Yoki Slonim, CEO of Anima, about the company's platform technology, how it can modulate the expression of proteins, and how it's leveraging its technology through partnerships with some of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. Yoki, thanks for joining us. Thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. We're going to talk about mRNA, why it's an area of emerging interest among therapeutics developers, and Anima's ability to use its platform technology to target what are otherwise considered undruggable targets through this approach. Let's start with mRNA, though. For listeners not familiar with mRNA, what is it and what's its function? So it's it's funny that you're saying for listeners not familiar with that word because literally almost everybody in the world now knows this word, mRNA. That happened because of COVID-19 and the vaccines. But, but really, um, this is just an example, an example of a phenomena which I think this word represents. It represents an opportunity to come up with drugs or with vaccines, for that matter, against diseases in unparalleled speed and safety profiles. And really what it is, is just a step 
in the biology that is a major step in the way that proteins are made. Now, most people know what proteins are. I mean, everybody is uh, aware of proteins. And most people also know about the fact that somehow they begin their journey in something called DNA. This is the gene. This is like the encoding that eventually each gene makes eventually one protein. But in between these two, there is one intermediate step that is called mRNA. That is a kind of a step where the gene is, is turned in the cells into a format, into some mo molecule, which is then translated into the protein itself. That's the way it works. Three steps, DNA, mRNA, proteins. And the thing that is translating the mRNA into protein, these are machineries inside the cells. Each cell has about, cell has about a million of those. They're called ribosomes. So really the whole biology is about this. DNA makes mRNA, and then ribosomes make from the mRNA by walking along the mRNA, they are kind of putting the protein together. So that's the process, and that's the word mRNA that everybody has been hearing about. And I think that what is, what is interesting to, to understand here is that why is this word so interesting other than the fact that there were these, you know, like uh, vaccines of, of mRNA and everybody became aware of it, this is not actually the first time that mRNA has been in the news. Actually, about three years ago, something interesting happened. A, a new class of drugs came to the market, and they are called RNAi. I stands for interference. It's a class of drugs these are injectable drugs, notably and importantly, you have to inject them, which makes them very uh, problematic to administer on a large scale. They are not like, you know, the oral drugs that you take by pills. But still, they also work in that area called mRNA. And the idea is very simple again. If the proteins are made from mRNA, which is made from DNA, if you cannot somehow find a drug that will inhibit the protein itself, and that's, by the way, the problem with undruggable proteins, you cannot find a molecule that would bind, that will attach itself to that protein to neutralize it, and that protein is the protein causing the disease. It's called the target protein for a reason. You are trying to target it. You are trying to stop the disease symptoms by inhibiting that protein. Usually it's because it's made too much. This is why you want to stop this process from happening. So if you cannot go after the protein itself, people thought about this already 35 years ago. Let's knock down, it's called the mRNA, a step before that. Let's go after that mRNA. We are going to target it right there before it's made. And this is what those RNA eye drugs are doing. But when you think about it, those drugs have many problems. And they also have a problem that they are famous for. It's called delivery problems. You need to inject them in order for them to work, but, but they kind of degrade so quickly that before you know it, they are already 
inactive, which makes them impossible to administer through pills because then they will go through your body and it takes six hours through the bloodstream. They're already disintegrated completely. So, so this new field of mRNA has kind of produced all of a sudden drugs against undruggable targets two times in a row. One time was this technology RNAi, and the other one was the mRNA vaccines. Now, I'm sure that we will come to talk in the next, your next question would be, so what are you guys doing about that? You know, what is your approach? What is your platform? What is, how is it different from all of these things that, uh, that you just described? But I want to tell you something. That question, which I hear a lot, is actually the second question. Because the way that I look at drug discovery, which is what we have a platform for, this is like digging gold. Or, or more like diamonds, because we are very rare and very small. And, you know, and the good ones are so hard to find. And a lot of luck also. So think about it like this. So, so when you ask about a platform, an approach, like is this technology, this platform good? That's the second question. You should be asking, where are you digging? Is this a good drug mine? You know, like a gold mine. We're going to talk about where you're digging, but Anima is developing small molecule drugs that alter the way mRNA is expressed. This allows you to not just inhibit a protein, but modulate it. What's the significance of being able to do that? Yes, that's actually a very interesting thing that the approach that I was describing before, that RNAi thing, is actually great for kind of knocking down those mRNAs before the protein is made. But it's by its nature, it's a one-way street. If there is too much of it, you can kill it. But what if there is too little of it? Like the protein is not there. It's not expressed enough. So here's the thing. With the biology that, that controls the way that the proteins are made by the ribosomes from the mRNA, there is a whole biology around that. Cells are super smart about this. And for cells, it's not more difficult to increase the production of an individual protein than it is to decrease it. This is a completely symmetric thing. They do it all the time. All these 20,000 proteins that we know about, cells increase or decrease each of them on an as-needed basis. So with small molecules, unlike those RNAi drugs, you have a chance to actually interact with that biology and to control it in a two-way street. And this is exactly what with our technology can be done because you can control that biology to either decrease or increase in a selective manner the translation, the production of a particular protein of interest. You're also able to do this in a tissue selective way. What's the significance of being able to target specific tissues? Oh, th this is actually a, a super important, super important question. When you think about as we, as we change our view from, let's say, those injectable drugs that are like um, um, with all their limitations, and we talk about small molecules, could we do those mRNA drugs with small molecules? You are coming to the biggest, actually, the biggest problem with small molecules is that in principle, they are like artillery. You know, you are taking them, they go through the bloodstream and 
whenever and whenever their target is a protein that they are binding to, to control that biology, as we said before, they're going to hit it. So you are all of a sudden exposed with every um, small molecule drug, every orally available drug to the problem of systemic side effects. It could work in unexpected places. So here's the thing. The question is, when you are going to hit with a small molecule in that area, which is called mRNA, what are you going to hit? Now, there are companies in that space of small molecules with mRNA, combining the two words together, that are thinking like this, let's do what RNAi is doing, but let's do it with small molecules. Let's knock down the mRNAs. Let's interfere with the mRNAs. So we will target the mRNAs. We will find a molecule that binds to the mRNA, and in doing that, it somehow destabilizes it or makes it impossible for the ribosomes to translate it into a protein. But the problem is, wherever and whenever that mRNA is going to be, it's going to bind to it. So they are going to work everywhere. Now let's take an example that is super easy to understand. One of our programs in our pipeline is about lung fibrosis. Lung fibrosis is when collagen is made in your lungs in an uncontrollable manner. Too much of collagen, all of the time, collagen. There is nothing for collagen to do in your lungs. It makes it as a scar tissue, non-functioning lung tissue. But collagen is the most abundant protein in your body. You've got it in your skin, in your bones, in your tendons, in your kidneys, in your liver. So if you take a pill that is supposedly targeting the mRNA of collagen, you are going to end up in a pretty bad shape, for sure. But here is where it comes to another idea, and this is what we're doing. Our platform is not targeting the mRNA molecule. We are going after the biology that cells use to control the way that mRNA is turning into protein. That biology, it is very exciting to see that, is tissue selective. It's not that the drugs are tissue selective. The biology, to begin with, is tissue selective. What does that mean? It means that the cells control the production, the translation of the mRNA of collagen into the actual protein in the lungs differently from the way that they control it in the liver, in the bones, in the kidneys, anywhere else. So if you have a drug like this that is working on that biology, it is working only on the control of mRNA of collagen or whatever other target protein we are working with in other programs in the tissue where it is supposed to work. So this is now not an artillery type of drug. This is a guided molecular missile kind of drug. It's like a drug that finds the disease and works only there. That's huge, that's huge, because even for those proteins where they are not undruggable, if you could come up with a drug like that, a drug that works only where there is disease, that's a much safer and much better drug. So. With our approach, you can produce drugs like this. You can discover drugs that work in that manner. 
one of the things Anima has done is build a library of all of the tRNAs in the human body. What are tRNAs and what do you do with these libraries to discover new therapeutics? Oh, so that's, that's actually coming to the core of the idea that, that Anima has been founded upon. Um, we actually are a company that is based on science that came from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And the company was incubated in the labs for almost a decade. And only in 2015, we launched it out of the university to make a drug discovery platform company out of it. But the whole idea that, that gave, I would say, the motivation to the whole thing was something that um, back in uh, 2008 or seven, 2007, we looked at the way, we looked at the way that these ribosomes are making proteins. And all of a sudden, my co-founder, Dr. Zev Smilansky, he had this insight and he said, you know, those ribosomes, they are like magicians of a single trick. Look at what they're doing. They are taking two amino acids, pair by pair by pair. They are building the protein from pairs of amino acids, pair by pair. But the way that those pairs are actually being assembled is that there are things called tRNAs in the cells, and they are hunting for those amino acids, they bind to them, they find them, and then the tRNAs are carrying them into the ribosome. And when two tRNAs sit in the ribosome, they unload the amino acids, and then the, ribosomes, the ribosome is putting them together. It's chemistry, and is stitching them together. Why is all that important? And what does that have to do with anything? It's that there is another phenomena and he connected something from quantum physics to it. He said, you know, there is something that was discovered more than a hundred years ago by a scientist in quantum physics, and it's called a phenomena called FRET, F-R-E-T. It stands for, for fluorescence, resonance, energy transfer. When two small molecules are put very close together to each other, but here's the thing. One of them you label with a fluorescent color. You attach a fluorescent tag to it that is red. And the other one, you attach a tag that is green. You put them very close together, less than five nanometers apart. But for a long time, half a second or more, that's eternity almost for molecules. And then you light them up with fluorescent light and you see something under the microscope, which is a quantum physics effect. The light jumps from one to the other. It's a donor and acceptor. So I told him, so what does that have to do with anything? And what are you going to do with that? He said, here's the thing. This scientist, when he discovered it, he said, the real problem is to find in nature a situation where the conditions will happen for the molecules to sit together consistently for half a second, five nanometers apart. How are you going to make that happen? He said, I found where it happens. It happens in every ribosome out of the million ribosomes in every cell, out of trillion cells in our body, what he thought that is the most unusual, hard to reproduce event in nature, it's the most repeatable event in nature. Two tRNAs are sitting there in the ribosome, less than five nanometers apart. 
for a long time, this is how the ribosomes pair by pair build proteins. So he said, if we will be able to label those tRNAs with fluorescent colors and transfect them, insert them into cells, from time to time, a pair of red and green will sit in the ribosome and a light pulse will jump out and we will be able to visualize with light pulses in images that glow like the Milky Way at night, we will see their life happening. We'll see the proteins being made by ribosomes. To cut a long story short, Anima in the university started to label tRNAs. And we labeled all the 46 types of tRNAs of humans. And we've got this library. When we get a protein now that we want to see how to visualize how that protein is being translated, we are using that library and we are finding what is called a signature tRNA pair. It's a unique pair for that protein in the matter that it is used a lot by the ribosomes when they produce that protein. If you transfect the cells with only that tRNA pair, red and green, the light images that you are going to start to see, most of the light that you will see, almost 95% of it will come from your protein. All of a sudden, with that idea, you can visualize in light maps the production of your target protein. Then the whole idea of the platform of Anima is super simple. We are running a screening system that runs molecules and tests them one after the other, hundreds of thousands in completely automated way to see which ones affect the light. If a molecule is decreasing the light in the images, it is decreasing the translation of the protein. If it is increasing the light in the images, it is increasing the translation of the protein. And then we track and we keep from screening run like this, maybe 50 million images. They are uploaded to the cloud. We've got mRNA image analysis, AI-based software that is looking for those that are actively reducing or increasing the light and finding the ones that are active and selected. And then we come to another thing, probably later in our conversation, about how do we figure out the mechanism of action of those? How do we know how they work? What are they doing with that biology that we talked about before? Why don't we turn to that? How do you figure that out? Okay, so that, that's actually, um, I would say, when we describe this whole idea to pharmaceutical companies, as our partners, like the deals that we did with Lilly and Takeda, these are very, very big strategic deals where the partner is saying, I'm going with that approach. I've got some proteins that I want to, to that are targets, that are hard targets or undruggable targets. I am betting on this approach for finding, you know, drugs that will indirectly through the mRNA will control that protein, either decrease or increase. But the second, second thing that they're saying, immediately after hearing what I just described, and rightfully so, they're saying, wait, but you know what you just described to me, that thing of screening that small molecule library with the images and all that stuff, um, this is what is called in the industry phenotypic screening. Now, maybe some people have heard it, but, but what is really phenotypic screening and why, why is that word important to note? And why are the pharma saying that actually as a warning and not immediately buying into it? What's, what's wrong with that? So first, there is nothing wrong with that. That 
screening, systematic search, which looks like trial and error almost, like you start with a library of molecules and you hope for some of them to work. That is how half of the drugs that F the FDA ever approved was found, were found. That's how drugs were found. Half of the drugs that were found were found in a different way, which is the complete opposite. And this is called target-based approach. So just to explain what, how these two concepts relate to each other, you could, when you have a disease, you can do one of the two things. You can either make a hypothesis or assumption of what is causing the disease and look at this assumption as the target protein. You're saying this protein is causing it. Now for Alzheimer, nobody knows still what is causing it. You know, it's, it's amazing that, that all the, that work and even the assumption is not, not necessarily correct. But that is called target-based approach. You make an assumption about what the target is, and then you try to find a drug that inhibits it, binds to it, neutralizes it, whatever. There is another approach called phenotypic screening, which is the complete opposite. You say, you know what? Let's find a molecule that solves the problem, that improves the disease condition, and then we figure out how we does it. Now, there are, there are drugs that, are in the market, paracetamol, Advil, the most common painkillers, and nobody ever understood how they do the magic. So the mechanism of action is not known. I remember meeting with a guy that was a, a fellow scientist of Novartis. And he told me that this, he got like his fellowship. This is like the highest level of scientific recognition in a pharmaceutical company like that maybe on just 50 people over the lifetime of the company. And he said, I got it because I found out the mechanism of action of one of our drugs. So 25 years he worked on it. So it's obviously, but not intuitively, super, super hard to understand how a drug works, even though it works. So when pharmaceutical company hears from me this story, the first reaction is, okay, you will find some molecules that work, and they are indeed selectively, tissue selectively, whatever the good stuff that you were saying so far works. However, we want to know how they work. The fact that the FDA approved some drugs, even though they don't know how they work, yes, it's true, but pharma companies don't like it. They want to know how it works because then they can design the clinical studies and understand the safety profile and Knowing how it works means what is the molecular target? What is that thing that is actually happening there in that biology that, that your drugs are doing around that mRNA? Explain it to me, convince me. Then I'm super happy because I've got the best of both worlds. I've got through the phenotypic approach, I got something that already works in cells, in live cells, not in vitro, but it's already working in the real biology. And then I even know how it works. But this is super hard. So here's the thing. Without technology, there is something that is a paradigm shift in the ability. It's a revolution in the ability to understand how drugs in the mRNA biology area to understand their mechanism of action. And the way that we do it is like this. When we take those images, the 50 million images, Actually, what are these images? They are images of two things. 
the light of the translation. We call it, by the way, translation light images. You actually see where, when, and how much of the protein is being made by ribosomes in real time. You see where the ribosomes are. You see the, the light. You know, it. it's really like the Milky Way at night. That's how it looks. Imagine it like that. But we also take, at the same time, images of the mRNA. And then these two things together are giving us millions and millions of examples of what these drugs do to the mRNA biology. And we've got in the cloud that AI software that is using all those millions of images to figure out patterns in how mRNA biology is affected by those molecules that are active. We, we, we actually see things like, is the mRNA itself being touched? Is it being relocalized by the drug to somewhere else in the cell? Is it being, is, is the compound actually hitting another protein that is by itself controlling the mRNA molecule? So we can see all these things. And within very short time, a few months typically, we can figure out the complete mechanism of action of our drugs. And we've done it, by the way, across two of our leading programs. One of them is in lung fibrosis with the collagen, as I said before. Another one is in oncology against a very famous undruggable protein called CMYK, which appears in 70% of the cancers as overexpressed. Each of these, we had three different molecules, and we figured out the mechanism of action and the actual target, molecular target, across all of these six molecules in less than 10 months. The six times in 10 months, that's like unbelievable to pharma companies. But it's believable to us because we are doing it completely different. We're not fishing in the dark for targets, as the saying is in the, in the pharmaceutical industry. We use AI and mRNA image analysis on a super high scale with cloud computing to actually make sense of the mechanism of action of those compounds by looking at how those images dif are different from the situation before the drug is there. And that technology is a breakthrough. It's a revolution in the ability to understand the mechanism of action of drugs in the mRNA space. We cannot do it for other drugs. Our imaging is all about mRNA biology. So this is why we can do it. Anima seems to have relied on partnerships more than traditional venture financing to fund its activities. How have you thought about funding and what role do these partnerships play in your financing strategy? So, so this is actually a, a question that I'm getting quite a lot, but usually it comes not with such a, I would say, a calm tone as, as, you, as you ask the question, but as a big surprise. Like people are telling me, what do you mean? What do you mean that you haven't brought any institutional investors in the company? We, we are not seeing any venture capital funds in your company, and you are a platform company, and you've got 18 programs in your pipeline, and you are less than a year from the clinic in, in, in one of them, and the next one is just immediately behind, and you've got 70 people, who is funding all of that? <laughs> How are you doing that? So first, 
yes, we don't have venture capital funds, but we raised money for private investors. And actually, you know, when I told you the story about all these uh, technology and you hear from me biology, but then you hear from me cloud computing and a lot of software, like it sounds like a lot of software, right? So uh, actually, Anima is, is a hybrid company of both. I come from software originally, and I was a software guy. I did three software companies prior to Anima. And, and actually, I was very lucky as a software guy. All of these companies got to great exits. One of them already as a public company with revenues of over $1 billion, was acquired by HP for $4.5 billion and became the software arm of HP worldwide, employing like 20,000 people. So I, I came from software and, and all these parts of using software and AI and bringing all that alongside the biology gives Anima a different approach. But it also brought different investors. So the original investors in the company were people that knew me from software companies and they were kind of looking at Anima as a tech company, as a tech company that is bringing new approach, new technologies into life sciences. And we grew the company like that. And then we came to the point that we spoke with Lily and we showed to Lily this approach. And Lily was saying, we've got a few proteins that are undruggable, that we want to work with you guys to try this. And we actually entered into that partnership and we were able to actually fund the company through that because of the nature also of the platform so much automation is happening in our platform that is doing work that people usually do and is doing in software things that are done usually in wet biology labs. So it's all of a sudden a situation where the company is capable of much faster getting to results, to assets, to drug candidates, and at the same time at a much lower cost. So we were able to actually fund the company through partnerships in that manner and grow the company to a stage where typically the comparable company will maybe raise 200 million. So it is actually a major part of our focus going forward is driven by that model to continue to partner. Now, it's not only because of the money. It's not only because of the money that these partnerships are bringing in. And by the way, investors are calling Anima all the time and they ask if they can invest in the company. And, and we, are, we are looking to do that, you know, like to bring investors as we are getting more and more, I would say, closer to the next stage, which may be a public company in the, I would say, I wouldn't say a time frame for that, but, but that could happen, you know, over the next uh, year, year and a half, you know, we are, we are looking and monitoring, you know, the market and, where we are as a company makes it possible already in terms of the achievements. We've got two deals with partners. We've got a huge pipeline, you know, a very broad pipeline. We've got in vivo data in programs. We are, we are where those things are possible. So when we're looking at that, we are actually thinking about the model of the company and bringing money through partnerships is great, but you have also to understand the way that we are thinking about the opportunity in mRNA in general, not just Anima. I mean, this is, this is the biggest maybe validated and highest, highest validation 
biggest and broadest drug mine of the future. Like when you think about those RNAi and the COVID vaccines from the other side, where was something that turned such high number so fast with such good safety profile of new drugs ever, other than the conventional approach? And things like this, there are only very, very few big waves like this that are really promising drug mines, you know? For example, gene therapy. That sounds great. Let's reprogram your DNA. We'll save you from a horrible disease. Well, that's a concept. Hasn't turned out drugs yet and sounds super, super, super tricky and complicated and validation in the patient population has been extremely low because it's going after very, very, very rare diseases mRNA vaccines have brought mRNA to the mainstream. Every person in the world, that's amazing. That's like bringing the attention to that, to the top heads of pharma, pharmaceutical, R&D worldwide. We are seeing this all the time. And the RNAi that is in the market. It's very much in that neighborhood of the same biology. So we are thinking how we can we also bring those drugs to a thousand diseases, a thousand hard targets, not to three, four, or maybe 20 or 50 that the anima can work on. And the only way to do that is through partners. So we are thinking about how to give our partners the ability, and we are even thinking about the possibilities that some of the work, and this is great about small molecule drugs, you know, because they are so, there is so much expertise in the pharmaceutical industry about how to develop, how to optimize how to work with these drugs. If we deliver only very initial leads, lead candidates, they can move it forward on their own. They know what next needs to be done, which was not the case for RNAi, by the way. Those were very different drugs. Nobody knew what to do with them. It took so many years to actually pave the road by these companies themselves. Nobody actually partnered with them early. Takeda partnered with us super early because we were able to show them a small molecule that is inhibiting the mutant Huntington protein. And it's not a misspelling. It's called Huntington for the disease that is Huntington. We were showing a small molecule that was so selective that it inhibited only the mutant protein, but was completely ineffective and sparing the, the normal protein. And they, they wanted it right away for the potential of it. So this kind of situations exist in the mRNA as a new strategy. And our strategy is to partner a lot. We are talking to almost any pharmaceutical company in so many therapeutic areas. And I think that this game of mRNA is only starting, but the excitement in companies and the awareness to that word mRNA is already at the highest it has ever been. And it's just growing all the time. We just said today in a, in a meeting, a workshop with one of the largest pharmaceutical companies, 45 people were there from the head of R&D, the CSO, and then the heads of R&D and the CSOs of all the therapeutic areas. They are looking into mRNA and deciding what to do. We were one of the companies, very few companies on the short list that were invited to present. So I, I think it's a huge wave. And it's going to just grow in value. And I think it's going to turn some, a large number of new drugs 
you know, the future will look good with this technology being deployed and, and used by pharmaceutical companies. One of the challenges of having a strong discovery platform that can generate attractive candidates rapidly is that companies can become victims of their own success as the cost of clinical development exponentially rises as candidates advance in clinical testing. As you think about partnering strategies, one of the frustrations that many platform companies have faced is that they feel they can't get adequate value for what they produce. Oftentimes, partnership dollars cover their expenses, but little more. How are you balancing the thought of developing your own drugs versus licensing them out? Anima is actually, as I said before, has demonstrated the ability to actually grow the company through those partnerships and to fund the company through those partnerships. It comes from the fact that we are capable of actually producing results with a much higher success rate than the typical drug discovery process and at a much lower cost because of the high level of automation that, that exists in our platform. And we are approaching things in a different way than how others are doing it. We are willing to partner, and we are telling this to our, you know, in our discussions with big pharmas, and also we have discussions actually with second-tier pharmas right now. It's, the interest is, is, is not only in the big pharmas for that, we are actually not ruling out partnering any of our programs. Like when you say your own drugs. I mean, most platform companies, when they say their own drugs, it's, it's like it's their own drugs unless somebody is willing to put a billion dollar, you know, right there to buy it. Then it's not their own drug. Then they partner it and they go and do something else. So we are capable. This is showing in our pipeline. I mean, you look at platform companies, and what the word platform means, it's, it's the potential. But when you look at the actual company, they've got three, four programs, maybe five, six, that they are trying, as you said, and it's becoming heavier and heavier and more and more expensive to move forward. So you cannot move it on a broad front. You're starting to move a very narrow front. And sooner or later, you become almost a synonym with your most advanced program. And if that program fails in the clinical trial, then the whole platform seems to have failed, which can impact dramatically also the value of the company and can even bury the whole platform from being ever you know, used in, in the marketplace. So, but we, when you can do what Anima can, has demonstrated, if you can build and, and think about it again, we haven't raised money for that to the scale that, that other companies have, 18 programs. Not four, five, three, 18 programs that we are capable of, of moving so fast at unprecedented pace, you know, and success rate so far. This is, this is actually something that is enabling us to look at partnering as something that is happening at scale and is, is fueling, you know, the company going forward. This is what we're doing. So if you want to partner, and this is what we've seen also, and we heard this a lot from, from pharmas as well as from investors in platform companies that we have been talking to. And they say, you know, 
The problem with the partnering model is that those companies are losing money like hell. They partner for the credibility of their approach, but they actually lose money. They are not even getting their expenses covered because there are delays and there are problems and there are restarts and all that has not been taken into account. So they just want the credibility. Once they sign the deal with the pharma, they use it to raise more money. So the, the losses that are caused financially by the partnership are covered by more money that is coming in. But if you could turn the pyramid on its head and you can say, if I deliver so much value, this should be a win-win. So the pharma should be happy and I should be happy. So you should be able to make money. But the only way to make money is to do it differently. Because if you do whatever everybody else is doing, so many people sitting on the benches, doing just the biology, there is nothing else, you are going to lose money. If you've got all this angle of the software all of a sudden, the AI, and all that is working for you, this is completely different ballgame. This is what we've been doing. So we are going to continue to do that at scale. This is going to continue to funnel into the company funds that are going to support us in moving forward. And obviously, as I said, we are going to bring in more money as we step to the next evolutionary development of the company, most likely in order to cross over, as you call it, you know, into the public markets. Or at this stage, we are not under pressure. I mean, we are, we are in good shape financially. We are even profitable, quite pro profitable, which is something that you don't see much as well. And it all comes from these advantages of our technology. Uh, by the way, we never asked pharmaceutical companies to invest in our company. They asked about it. They like to do it. We wanted Anima to remain independent. And we look at this as something that is, is actually quite important because we want to be able to work with multiple partners and not get into conflicts around that. Yochi Slonim, co-founder and CEO of Anima Biotech. Yochi, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.